0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word
1: of the Lord. Lord, please... Look on our affliction and deliver us. Help us, we pray, not to forget your law. God, plead our case, our cause, and redeem us. Give us life according to your promise, according to your rules, according to your steadfast love. God, great is your mercy. Help us to love your precepts, because the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Lord, help us believe your word and cherish your word to believe you and to cherish you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Tonight's a torch night. If you're in 4th, 5th, or 6th grade, I'd encourage you to head out the east door here with the wards. They're ready to uh, give you what perhaps may be a better sermon than you're going to get in here. You never know. Torch is a wonderful way to transition. We've enjoyed uh, sending our boys... Ivan, you not going today, bud? Oh, he wants to listen to the big sermon tonight. Okay. That'll lead to an interesting conversation. I'm going to use you like in five points tonight, so I was planning on that. Have you enjoyed the book of Ecclesiastes so far? I sure hope so. Nothing quite like hearing life is a vapor every single week. Well, get ready for more of the same. Tonight we are in chapter 5, as Tim read for us. We're also going to drift into chapter 7. Ecclesiastes really doesn't work like a Pauline letter or or a narrative, perhaps in the Old Testament or in the Gospels, in that it follows a a bit of an order, more like a kid's picture Bible, where you want to look at the picture across multiple pages. And so we're going to move from 5 to 7 because we find related themes that will help us to know how to begin to respond in faithfulness and in wisdom to what we've heard so far in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you haven't been with us, then some of the things we've heard is that this life somehow deceives us into thinking that we are masters of it, that we've got life by the horns. That's what we think anyway. The problem is managing the vape, this vapor of a life is like trying to grip the smoke off your campfire. Just when we reach out to take a commanding hold of our work, of our pleasure, of our suffering, we we feel it slipping right through our fingertips. And it leaves us in a coughing mess, making us want to run off into the forest. Let's face it, we are unable, friends, to manage our own lives, unable to explain the universe, unable to explain our own souls often, and not, not, not anymore the souls of those around us. People, How people work, how people play, what people enjoy, why we enjoy it. Thankfully, we've also seen in the book of Ecclesiastes that, that God is mysteriously and wisely working to manage every movement, every good and yes, Even every trouble we experience for his purposes and for our good. Guys, a Hevel life does not mean a hopeless life. It just means that to put your hope in that life is hopeless. We must be able to put our hope in the one who manages Hevel perfectly. The one who manages the smoke of this life wonderfully for our good and for his glory. The text that Tim did read in chapter 5. We see that we're tempted, when we're being foolish, to want to head into worship full of too many, full of empty words. Then when we move into chapter 7, we'll see that the wise person contemplates clearly their end, the end of their life, recognizing the limits of even wisdom and learning to rest in the Lord who rules over and rescues us from this broken world. So let's go in and see if we find this together. First, the worship of the fool in chapter 5. The Psalms, they define the fool as the one who says in their own heart, there is no God. And the scriptures say that this belief that we are not under authority and that we are not made by something more powerful than us is bound up in our hearts all the way from birth. And as every parent knows Both in the heart of their children and in our own hearts as we deal with those children, this belief is not easily dislodged. Empty religion sure won't do it. When the religious fool runs into worship hastily, really just going in to go through the motions, wanting to impress God or perhaps even just impress other people with what he knows about God or what he wants to do for God in all of his promises, he's often full of too many and empty words because hastiness, rashness, thoughtlessness in speech, these all fall short of the wise and worshipful way to approach the Lord when we come together with God's people. God is not impressed, guys, with our word count when we worship him. He's not looking necessarily For that ever increasingly passionate phrase or word repeated 12 more times, 24 more times for that matter, in a row until the smoke fills the stage and flows off that stage or the lights hit that perfect hue and manipulate our emotions just a bit more. Guys, he wants us to know who he is he wants us to hear him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to fear him, revere him, respect him, and cherish him for who he is, for what he's done, and for what he promises to do. God is the one who is in heaven. Why? Because he is the one who made and rules all things. And he understands all things, even, of, even our hearts as we approach him, both privately, and as a family. And corporately here, week in and week out. He is in heaven, but we are here on earth in an utter state of dependence, complete lack of independence, lacking in comprehensive understanding of the ways of God and the ways of the world. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Paul asked the Roman Christians. Or who has been his counsel or implication? No one. We are under the sun. He is beyond the sun, as we've already seen in the book of Ecclesiastes. And our relative positioning with God being over the sun and us under the sun, that should determine who in this party, in this conversation, should be talking the most. And whose words ought to be listened to the most. Worship is a time to reorient our hearts. To realign our values, transform our lives through the renewal of our minds, remind us of our place in this universe. Therefore, our words ought to be most often rehearsing and reflecting upon and responding to His words, not just picked out of the blue and out of the sky. If you'll remember... Way back during the exodus out of Egypt, God's original command to his people in the wilderness before they had really fully become his people in his place and with his perfect presence was that they would hear, not speak, but hear. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How? These words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. God of Israel is one. He is undivided. He is perfect and complete in every way, and he longs for a people whose devotion is less and less divided as the days go by. Why? Because they're listening closer and closer to Him in their own life and across the generations of lives that come from them. The foundational characteristic of God's people is not that they necessarily can speak, but that they can listen to their God. A true worshiper, growing in their love of God, will be first a hearer and second a speaker. Yet we find ourselves often divided and disoriented in our worship and in our lives each week and every day, compartmentalizing our devotion to God, speaking about what we think we know rather than hearing what he has said, perhaps mimicking other things that we've heard in the world and ignoring the things that his word has said. In our religiosity, we're willing to heap up words of adoration to God, even making vows to really, really do better and work harder next time. But then we, we walk out of here and we live like we're the boss of our own lives, like we've got it all figured out or worse, that we're actually making progress in earning God's favor in our life through our human will rather than simply responding to God's love in Christ with joyful submission and growing obedience. We try, don't we, to grab the hevel of our households, the vapor of our vocations, the smoke of our suffering, and we, can, we think that we can make them do whatever we want them to and serve our purposes. But we're wrong, friends. We're wrong to think that we are divine in that sense. He is God in heaven, and we are here on earth. Perhaps you aren't hasty to confess or profess along with us or sing all the right words at church. Perhaps you're just plain hesitant to even attend church. Do you find sitting under the preaching of God's word every single week to be kind of an inconvenience relative to all the other things you have to get done or at least pretty darn low on the priority list whatever we're doing whatever we're thinking about whatever we're struggling with in life there's nothing more important for us than to hear from god To hear Him rightly, to hear Him humbly, to hear Him regularly, to hear Him together. God speaks through what's going on right now, the regular preaching of His Word. And He speaks through the ongoing discipline of His people to read and to understand and to apply His Word privately in their own devotion, yes, but even more importantly together in community as a body in unity with one another. No wonder the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect the meeting together of the saints, as is the habit of some. God's plan has always been to bring his people regularly under his word to hear his heart and to conform our hearts back to his. He uniquely speaks in our time together here on Sundays as we gather and as The principles and the applications of God's word are unfolded for God's people by God's mouthpiece, the preacher. And God is working on us all, is he not, when we open up these words? Not the least of which, the man up front opening them and speaking them. Perhaps you've been in a church where the Bible is being used merely as supplementary to the regular diet of a preacher's opinion, his own thoughts. His witty jokes, friends, that's not preaching. True preaching lets the message of the text, the main message of the text, shape the main message of the sermon. And though we are not perfect at it by any means, our hope and our goal and our prayer is that we would be doing that week in and week out. And you'd be eager to hear it and eager to believe it and eager to be transformed by it. But just know that if Nathan or I ever seem to be letting our own thoughts or our own personality or our own humor dominate this hour, then consider this full and loving permission to fully and lovingly come and correct us and show us God's Word. We're eager to be confronted and shown light from His Word. Our sermons are not for entertaining you or impressing you with our wit but for uniting us all under the thoughts of God on a regular basis. May it be so. Ephesians 4, it does not say, speak your minds in love to one another. It says, speak the truth in love. And we ought to be letting God's word set the agenda for our services, for our gospel communities, for our conversations among one another, for our counsel for one another, for the counsel we're going out to find. Is God's word peripheral to the counsel you're receiving or is it central to the counsel you're receiving? And when we're together as a church, we cannot just be filling the room with carbon dioxide or watching people up here fill the room with carbon dioxide. We ought to be leaning in and drinking deep from the wellspring of God's goodness and his wisdom and his grace that we find in his word. Jesus often called out those who thought they were believers but didn't listen intently to the word, believe the word clearly, and obey his word quickly. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them the scariest words you've ever heard. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not enough to say you're a Christian and then embrace lawlessness with your whole heart treating God's Word like it doesn't exist or it doesn't apply to you. Lawlessness, friends, is a sign that we don't know Jesus, or worse, that He doesn't know you. Because a truly forgiven heart will grow in eagerness and embracing God's laws, not perfectly, but in increased measure, and his wisdom, not perfectly, but in increased measure, and his guidance, not perfectly, but with increased measure, knowing that it's good for you and good for others. So far in Ecclesiastes, we've seen in a world full of oppressive human injustice, there seems to be no hope. Well, the overly religious. They ignore God's command to go and tell the gospel and, and, and to love the hurting. And they just preach, well, if those folks out there would only find Jesus and come to church, well, they'd get better, I bet. If they're unwilling to follow Jesus's clear and compelling command to go and to love and to serve and to tell the good news of Jesus. Let's face it, the, the, the non-religious aren't any better at solving the world's problems or engaging them rightly and wisely. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that unbelievers, they fill up the air with empty words, thinking they will be heard and heeded. But what's the best they can do? Form another committee? Sign another petition? Pass another law even? I know. Set up another TED Talk. That'll change the world, won't it? the world and its problems, they seem to elude the greatest minds and the greatest voices we've heard across the generations. So much chatter, so much good intention, so much refined political opinion, but so little true and lasting and eternal wisdom and so many under-delivered or flat-out broken promises by both sides. What's worse, so little listening from our leaders even to the one who is beyond the sun, who understands toil and pain and oppression and its source and knows the solution more than any of us could ever dream of. Yet how many in the world are actively and eagerly listening to the word of the Lord? Who among your colleagues, who among your neighbors and friends or family members, who among them are saying often, I wonder what the scriptures say of this? Or let's go see what God has to say about the matter. How often are you saying that out loud in front of people or thinking it as you come across another vaporous element in this world? We think we can manage our hevel marriages. We can parent our hevel kids. We can do our hevel work. We can solve our cities and our world's hevel problems. All we got to do is take it into our hands, our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own words, which are all hevel themselves. Politicians and psychologists and even Dr. Phil can study how people behave and try to connect the dots. But God designed and can diagnose the soul like no other. And God gives hope beyond modifying your behavior. Or manipulating your moods or giving us more self-esteem. God gives more hope than what the world calls recovery. He gives the hope of a restored relationship with your maker. And when that restored relationship and mended friendship is realized and cherished, it satisfies beyond all tricks of the trade the world has come up with in the last hundred years. We can build our house, our life, on the sandy land of earthly reasoning and earthly relationships, or we can build our lives, our hopes, on the rock of Jesus as he is revealed in the Scripture and the good news of his gospel. And when we do, even the worst waves of our emotional instability of our addiction, of our broken relationships will hit us and hit us and hit us and we will come out the the other side unscathed and hopeful in the Lord. And the world won't know what to do with that. The scriptures are a river in a dry and weary land of homemaking, of child rearing, of working toil, of marriage conflict, of loneliness, of depression, and even of the death of a loved one. The scriptures are living and active. They're breathed out by God. They're sharper than any two-edged sword. They're useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. They cut deep, dividing our souls, our spirit, our joints, and our marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. The fool's worship is a wordy sham. He comes to the assembly to make his appearance, to check off his attendance to earn his spiritual brownie points, all the while playing games with God in his heart. He doesn't even know he's doing evil, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says. He's so deceived by going through the motions of religion that he doesn't realize he stopped listening to God. And he's only left listening to his own futile words his own empty promises to God. Friends, let's not talk our way through church or life with our spiritual ears covered, reciting confessions and saying professions and thanks be to God's with emptiness. Let's listen well while we're together. Dive deeper into the Bible when we're apart. Help one another understand it and apply it week in and week out. Let's make our prayers and our songs and our confessions reflect hearts that are in tune with what the Bible says day in and day out, not passively on Sundays, but actively daily. One commentary I read about this passage said that Christians are prone to imagine that our songs and prayers are are going into some divine microphone at the top of the room, ending in God's ears, but that's not all that accurate of an image. Rather, God's ears are connected to a divine stethoscope while we pray, while we sing, and even while we listen. He's listening to our hearts, to what we want, to what we value, to what we care about, and he's longing to line them up with what he wants, what he values, what he cares about. This is what it means to fear the Lord, to revere and respect and live in awe of him with a listening ear. Let's do that together more and more, friends. Let's avoid the worship of the fool from chapter 5. And now let's look in chapter 7, if you'd look at it with me. Since Tim wasn't uh, able to read it for us, we're going to move through it rather quickly and hit on some of the ways of wisdom that we ought to aim for in light of the heaviness of this world. The preacher shows us that l- learning wisdom and living wisely, it'll feel upside down To us, upside down in the world's eyes, but even upside down in the Christian's eyes, I think. The world says just get that job, get that car, reach that next rung of the status ladder, buy all the expensive ointment, it is in the text, for us the cars, the the houses, all the things of richness and status. You've made it. Who cares if you had to step on a few people on the way up the rung? You're here, aren't you? Enjoy it. But wisdom says there in in verse 1, a good name, a good reputation of kindness, humility, love. A good name is better than the precious ointments. You know, the baller perfume, the latest toys, the fleeting status money can buy. The preacher says that under the sun, we'd be more wise to build up our character than our wardrobe. We'd be more wise to build up our character than our bank account or our portfolio. Yet, what are we spending most of our time building up? And how does the preacher propose that we build up our character and our wisdom? Go back to school. What school? The school of suffering. The school of death. Quit throwing so many character-numbing parties and go to a funeral for God's sake. Go stare death square in the face. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for the sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, of laughter. Truths, our sister Rita and our sisters Danny and our sister Karen know all too well in recent days. Three unexpected deaths in Danny's extended family, one this past week in Karen's, and a handful in Rita's. How dare we say the the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting or the house of delighting. It won't feel that way. Is it true? Is sorrow better than laughter? If you found yourself wandering through a hospital and there was a fork in the hallway and one way said maternity ward and the other said the morgue, I bet you all of us would choose maternity ward. You might bump into a brand new baby there. You get to poke its cheeks give it googly noises and see if it smiles. The, tre- the, the preacher here tells us that the fool ignores the lessons of the morgue. Who among us, who among us can honestly say that we've learned the most about God's perfect power manifested in our utter weakness and His wonderful mercy to comfort In a time of ease. Or during a gut-busting laugh. Instead, God seems committed to showing us more about ourselves and the most about himself in our days of trouble and acutely in the day of death. When a loved one dies, or when the story of suffering unfolds, In a new way for us, we ought not run from it, or hide from it, or numb ourselves by the escape of entertainment in it. Rather, we ought to consider it thoughtfully. We ought to carefully take it to heart, as we see here. Because suffering is an inevitable part of an uncontrollably heavy Vaporous life. And death is the end of this hevel life. And we would be unwise to ignore it. Friends, we ought to let the brevity of this life, the inevitability of death, transform what we care about now and how we live tomorrow. Yes, maternity wards have more smiles and they smell better. But what do we really learn from them? So cute. He has her eyes. Oh, those are going to change in a few weeks. Um, um, he has her nose. Literally everything about this little one is yet to be determined and fulfilled in their life. But go over down, down the other hallway to the morgue and listen to the voices that surround the worn out, lifeless body. How much more do we learn? about the character of the person, about who they were and how they lived. He was so wonderfully in love with his wife. He served her every moment he had. He worked so hard to serve his family too. She was faithful to the end, right up until the bitter and painful end to the Lord. How sad that he was such an old grumpy fart. How sad that she died resisting God right up to the end. Friends, there's so much more to observe and consider and to learn at the end of life than there is at the beginning. Are you eagerly moving toward the messiness of suffering and the darkness of death in order to learn wisdom, in order to take to heart what truly matters? Or would you rather turn on reruns of Friends or The Office to numb you to the difficulties of life and to help you get to sleep at night? Do you wish we as pastors would work harder to make you laugh and feel good every single week? There's no shortage of sitcoms, of comedies, Christian or not, and shallow sermons meant to numb us from what really matters and what's really heavy in life? Are we numbing ourselves by avoiding difficult conversations about life and death? When those things come up, do we change the topic very quickly because we're uncomfortable with these things? Or are we embracing the lessons from God for our good and for the good of others as painful and as difficult as they may be? as we stare death in the face, and as we watch it move one day closer every single morning to ourselves, Paul's words ought to come to life for us. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. When's the last time you thought to die is going to be gain? It's only true if you're a Christian. It's only true if you're trusting in Christ. It's only true if he's transforming you and you can actually say that your life is more and more becoming like Christ. Friends, we don't get to decide when we die, but we can decide with God's help who we're going to trust in the rest of our lives and how we're going to live. Look at verse 5 with me if you would. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. I love it when I make a campfire and you, I take my sweet time chopping up, as long as it's not super cold, chopping up the firewood into kindling. Because when you put that in the bottom, my dad taught me this, you put that kindling all together, give it enough air, give it some flame, and I love the crackling. It's always gone so fast, though. On our way home this weekend from Farmington, Joanna turned on a 90s playlist our Apple Music, and I found myself very quickly saying, how can something that's so bad feel so good? And by bad, I don't just mean evil, though plenty of them are outright evil. Come on, admit it. Just foolish and full of nothing helpful at all. Ladies, leave your men at home. Why? Because the club is full of ballers. And you're a genie in a bottle. You saw the sign, it opened up your eyes to this sweet, sweet fantasy baby. So baby, hit me one more time. What are they talking about? You don't want to know. And don't forget the dudes as they collaborate and listen, because Ice is back with a brand new invention, right? Except not. He stole that song. If You didn't know that. Pop music has not gotten much better. The song of fools is no help in, in these scenarios of heaviness. All they've done, really, recently in pop music, is come up with more creative ways to use the word "baby," like "baby, baby, baby," oh, like "baby, baby, baby," no, like "baby, baby, baby." Thank you, Justin Bieber, you wonderful poet, you and the one my boy, boys, boy, can't stop singing, baby. Why can't you just meet me in the middle? And all the while, Joe and I, literally, we are losing our minds, not just a little. I think, ask Ruben, you, you could talk me into an hour or two of busting a move to these hits with my wife. But I don't think you could pay me a million dollars to go back to, when I, to, to, to what I used to value And the way I used to live when I loved these songs and loved pursuing worldly passions to the foolishness that they spewed into my ears. If we compare the amount of time that we listen to pointless, or let's be honest, godless and sometimes overtly sinful songs, just look up the lyrics if you don't believe me. Granted, with a great beat and a catchy tune that we all love to hum. If we compare the amount of time we listen to those songs, to how much time we spend evaluating our own character and asking others to do the same, embracing the rebuke of a wise person, this means you all need to convert to uh, Christian hip-hop. Like, I'm not joking. You need the rebuke of a wise man, Look up Andy Minio; He will much oblige your need for a rebuke. And so will Trip Lee and Lecrae, kind of used to, and I don't know what he's up to now. But they don't mess around. They're not just trying to fill our ears with fuzziness. And if you don't like rap, then go find something else that will help you realize how short this life is and how much we need to be faithful to the Lord. I'm not saying eliminate all the music. That's not the point here. But is it the soundtrack of your life? Is it getting you through the heaviness of this life for the wrong reasons? Is it numbing you to the brokenness? Or is it bringing that brokenness to life and speaking truth into it? Hopefully the songs we sing here are more and more filling up the soundtrack of your life. Hopefully you're looking at the weekly email and clicking on the Spotify link or the YouTube link and and singing these songs more than just when we come together. All right, enough about music. Next, the preacher goes on um, in chapter 7 here to, to address a few specific areas that actually need some proverbial rebuking, and he uh, will help us out with those. First, there in verse 7, surely oppressive, oppression drives the wise into madness, and the bribe corrupts the heart. So, so just briefly on each of these proverbial statements, extortion, guys, wisdom, is good, but it's not bulletproof. It doesn't come with the bulletproof vest. We're to guard our hearts, even as we seek wisdom against the love of money. Because even a wise person can be vulnerable to corruption that distorts justice and accepts a bribe and ignores those who need help. Verse 8 and 9. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. My short temper is a reflection of what I value deep in my heart. It's a sign that what I want isn't being lined up with perfectly, By the inconvenient sinners around me, and that I believe wrath should be paid and given in response. I want life to be comfortable and easy and under my control. God wants me to grow in these contexts, He wants you to grow in these contexts. So we cannot base the length of our fuse on whether people or situations are lining up with our will and our desires and our convenience. That's idolatry. God is in control. We ought to respect him. We ought to love people. We ought to be patient. And guys, lengthening the fuse is not the answer. Because a long fuse blows eventually, too. We've got to literally defuse the bomb. We've got to let the Lord do the work in our heart that actually humbles us and helps us to see that our wants don't have to be met. Why do we quarrel, James says? Because we want and then we don't have. And, even when you, and it's because you don't ask. And you don't, ha- you don't have it because you don't ask God for it. And even if you do ask God for it, you're asking for the wrong reasons to use it on yourself. So we're just saturated with selfishness here. No wonder we get upset. No wonder we bitter or we fight bitterly and quarrel and murder one another in our hearts. Let's stop expecting others to literally fear us and our wrath and let's show them what, it, what matters most to revere God, to trust him with the messes of life. Guys, I've got confess, confessing to do inside my home about this. And some of you do too. Third, um, nostalgia. We saw extortion, patience and anger, and and here, nostalgia. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Friends, did all your hope die off? The good old days? Millennials. I can't understand them. And I can't kill them. Or can you believe kids these days? All their hip hopping, trash talking, fortnighting. We used to climb trees uphill, both ways in the snow. The problem with nostalgia, though, is that it often idealizes the past, forgets the faults of yesteryear, and undermines God's working and grace to move in new and possibly, let's be honest, uncomfortable ways for us. Sin has always been around. It will be around till Jesus comes back. Let's just be faithful together to God and his word and hold our comforts, even our traditions loosely, eager to listen to the wisdom of the aged and eager to see God move in new ways across the next generations. Finally, There's the last two sections of chapter 7. I'm just going to smoke through this for us. The preacher here has essentially set his heart to find wisdom. But instead, finds the limits of wisdom. So he's looking for wisdom, but he finds its limits. He finds that wisdom is not, in and of itself, the thing that is all satisfying. It's not the biggest problem, the lack of wisdom. Living foolishly, yes, it may end up putting you in the grave early but but seeking wisdom or righteousness it doesn't mean you'll always have the positive outcome that you're hoping for death is coming all right it's it's helpful as we saw earlier to stare into death intentionally but there's something bigger there's something badder out there the preacher says something worse for a human than their last breath she's pictured as a woman With snares and nets, ready to capture, ready to torture, ready to kill, and ready to consume her victim. Look with me at verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. The woman's name is sin. And no one ever has successfully avoided her trap. God made us. He created every one of us to know Him, to honor Him, to live for Him by hearing Him, by enjoying Him, by obeying Him. And yet we've shut our ears to Him. We've opened our mouths. We've hardened our hearts. We've rejected our God. We've chosen foolishness that says in our heart, I got this. There is no God. Or maybe there is a God. But still, I've got this. I don't really need him. Back in verse 13, the preacher says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We are helpless to straighten ourselves out. We are helpless to straighten out this heavenly world This broken world, suffering and death will will linger until the day God decides to send Jesus back. But in the meantime, our maker has made a way to begin to undo the crookedness in this world. Straightening out what he has made crooked in response to the sinfulness of his creation. And this collective crookedness of the world, made up of the accumulation of each one of our self-centered crooked ways is unfixable by human will. We need Jesus. We need him to live the straight life we couldn't live. We need him to worship God perfectly, with perfect words and perfect posture of his soul every moment of his whole life in our place. In all the places that we've talked about this evening that we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. And he's done it for us so that we might be restored to the Father. This is the gospel. He lived for us. He died for us. He resurrected back to life, came back to life, proving that his death worked for us. And he will draw us out of our lack of wisdom. He will save us because of, even, even in light of our lack of wisdom and in our embracing of the crookedness of this world and the bribery, and the anger, and the impatience. He will wipe it all clean, friend, if you'll trust in Him, and if you'll lean into Him. This is our highest. This is our highest and our most eternal wisdom that we can access. To listen to the good news of the gospel, to realize we need it, to embrace it as right and as good, as true and as right. Then we will learn to properly fear, respect, and worship the God who saves us by grace. And finally, we'll long all the more to share this great and eternal wisdom with all the people that we know. Even while the smoky, vaporous breath of life floats onward and floats upward through our fingers, we'll have something to say that matters. We'll have something to say that gives people hope. The best we can do is press in to his wisdom namely the gospel, and to into his grace together. Let's pray that we might do that now. Father, you are God in heaven, just as your word says. And we are here on earth. May our words be humble. May our words be faithful. May our words be wise. May our words be few. And may your words be many. May your words be perfect in our eyes. And may we see them as they are, as true, in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in
0: Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.